Right, so good morning and welcome to this workshop. My name is Tim, I'm an alcoholic and <clears throat> a number of other things. Good morning, everyone. So today, let me share the screen. We're at the top of page 86. It should appear on the screen presently. Oops. There we go, that's better. Let me just make it slightly bigger. Good. So, when we retire... I'm going to read the whole paragraph and then break it apart. When we retire at night, we constructively review our day. Were we resentful, selfish, dishonest or afraid? Do we owe an apology? Have we kept something to ourselves which should be discussed with, with another person at once? Were we kind and loving toward all? What could we have done better? Were we thinking of ourselves most of the time? Or were we thinking of what we could do for others, of what we could pack into the stream of life? But we must be careful not to drift into worry, remorse or morbid reflection, for that would diminish our usefulness to others. After making our review, we ask God's forgiveness and inquire what corrective measures should be taken. So... um. I may repeat things that have been said in other weeks. The range of people is not exactly the same and some context is necessary. So this is part of step 11. But it's a bit confusing because it looks as though it contains an inventory. And if you look at page 59 of the big book, it tells us that continued inventory is part of step 10, not part of step 11. But this is where... Um, the, the, the step on page 59, let's just go to page 59 to read, read out what steps 10 and 11 are. Um, so step 10, continue, continue to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. And then 11, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. That's just a headline. The actual content is the pages of the book which describe how that step is carried out. And I'm sure many of you, if not all of you, have recipe books at home. And if you have a recipe book for which has got, um, for instance, a table of contents at the front, so page 7, quiche Lorraine, page 8... Black Forest Gatto, uh, page nine, seven layer cake. Now, let's take seven layer cake as a good example. <laughs> Who doesn't like seven layer cake? So, now, if you saw a table of contents in a recipe book and it said seven layer cake, you wouldn't know what the layers consisted of. All you know is that there are seven layers. That's, a, you know... Does it have walnuts? Who knows if it has walnuts? Um, is there cream? Is there buttercream? What's in it? No idea. It's a title. The steps are like that. It's no good taking the pages, the, 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 the steps as they're written on page 59 and say, ah, oh, now I understand step 10. Now I understand step 11. You'll have as much clue about step 10 and 11 by reading page 59, as you will about seven layer cake from the phrase seven layer cake. Uh, you've got to look at the contents. And once you look at the contents, 
you'll know if it's a seven layer cake or a quiche Lorraine or a Black Forest Gatto by tasting it. People can call it what they want. You know what you're eating. So this, it is a review, but it's part of step 11. And it's really a meditation. In step four, we do a technical analysis. In step 11, we're coming at the same material from from a meditative point of view. And if you have, if you go to the doctor, they will, and let's say you've got a, an, a, a bacterial infection. Most bacterial infections go away just by, if you just wait and look after yourself. Um, but if it's very bad, then you, you're given an antibiotic. Um... And if the first antibiotic doesn't work, they'll give you the secret antibiotic from the special shelf. Um, and there's an there are layers upon layers of special antibiotics. There are ones they give to almost no one uh, because they don't want drug resistance to develop. Um, <laughs> there is a quotation here. Let me just see if I can find it. Okay, so someone gave me this list. <laughs> it's such a good list. It's um, 48 things that Rabbi Menachem Mendel of Kotsk said. And the first one on the list is this. A horse walks down the middle of the road. A human being, on the other hand, sticks to one extreme or the other. And my observation with... <laughs> What's so brilliant about that is the horse has more sense than the human being. So he's like, horses, do what, whatever horses do, do what horses do. <laughs> They're clearly smarter than you are. Um, so <laughs> with inventory, most people either do nothing or they completely overdo it. Um, and I've had sponsees, I'd give, tell you two, two, two examples. I had a sponsee a few years ago that had been working with someone else and every night for years she'd been writing inventory for up to an hour and then sending it to her sponsor and they would spend another half hour the next day analysing the inventory, the ins and outs. And she's, her comment to me was, nothing ever changes and this just feels so heavy. Um... Someone asked me for sponsorship a few years ago. The girl was about seven or eight years sober. Nice girl, very solid in AA. Um, and she'd done something. She'd got a sponsor. She'd been through the steps before. She'd got a sponsor and she'd done something called Big Book Awakening. Now, let's not go into the history of that. That's a whole, <laughs> that's a whole other thing. But it's this incredibly meticulous, detailed way of doing inventory uh, but there are no limits on it so she had four ring binders of paper full of inventory literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages uh, huge amounts of repetition 
And she'd been doing this inventory for about a year, and she was just getting to the point that she was ready to read it out. And her sponsor, I don't know, went abroad. I mean, I think I would go... If I was the sponsor of that, I would go abroad as well. <laughs> I get my cleaner to answer the phone, you know, Mr. Morgan, he gone away, he not come back. <laughs> um, <laughs> but anyway... But the poor girl was in tears in meetings because of the weight of this inventory. For heaven's sake, walk down the middle of the road. Don't do more than is strictly necessary. So on a daily basis, uh, we've got some questions to answer here. There's a meditation. Meditation in 1939 means concentrated thought. So it means I think about these questions carefully. That's all it means. I'm going to think about them carefully and answer them in the presence of my higher power because this is under the heading of step 11. Um, now, does that mean to say I never write things down? I never reach for the tools of step 4 in an inventory situation? Of course I do. Uh, and in fact, over the last two days, I've had a couple of things happen. One of them, um, there was an incident at my... Don't tell anyone. There was an incident at my home group. And, um, I mean, it's fine. It was dealt with. But I could have done without the... It's one of those situations where something goes wrong and you look round waiting for one of the adults to say something or do something and none of them does, so you have to deal with it. Great. Me again. So I'm going to be the unpopular one. Wonderful. Anyway, so I'm now to my best friend on Friday evening and Saturday morning I'm not comfortable. So I write I write a little inventory. It takes I mean you do this for long enough it's quick. It takes 5 minutes. All out boom. Oh, I'm frightened of confrontation. I'm frightened of looking bad if I say the right thing. Okay, it's I know what to do now. And the same happened yesterday. I couldn't work out why I was disturbed and I realised it was self-esteem. I was pinning my self-esteem to other people's reactions to stuff in an AA context. And again, I, I just dropped it. But I do enough inventory to realise that, the, in, that the, 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 that I believe something which is untrue and I see through it. For instance, yesterday, that... My self-esteem is pinned to other people's reactions. Some people in AA did not react to me the way I wanted them to, and I'd pinned my self-esteem to it. The point of the inventory is to see through it. Once I saw through it and thought, ah, it's the old mistake again, I could let it go. But I don't do more inventory than is strictly necessary. What I do do is check in with God every day, and I use this inventory to do it this 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 inventory meditation let's call it an inventory meditation on page 86 when do i do it i mentioned this last time uh when we retire at night um i you could translate in this context you could translate night into hebrew as either erev or laila <laughs> so you know this could be at the beginning of the evening. This could be as the This could be when the working day ends. This could be when you're settling down for the evening. Most people I know, you get to eleven o'clock, you ain't going to be thinking clearly anymore. So most people I know 
do this actually either first thing in the morning or they do it when the working day ends. Very few people I know are able to do this late at night successfully. If you can, that's great, but feel free to do it at other times of day. Sometimes I do it uh, two times a day. Let's say there's a lot going on and I just want to process stuff out of my system. I run and I walk. Sometimes when I go for a run or go for a walk, I've got this memorised in my head. It's very, very good to have this paragraph memorised, by the way, so you've always got it available. I just run through these questions. So let's run through what the questions are. The first one, uh, well, that's actually, let's look at the introduction. When we retire at night, um, remember we've got two levels. We've got this level of material action which is where my feet are, and then we've got the higher level of spiritual consciousness, which is my connection with God. This retiring from the material world is actually rising up to a higher level. So I go back up to the level where I'm connected with God. Remember, it says in step three that what we do is we stay close to God and perform his work well. Stay close to God, higher level. Um, stay, uh, perform his work well is the lower level. So retiring is going from the lower level to the higher level. We constructively review our day. So the, the only purpose of this is to clear the decks in the same way that uh, I'm sure you all do this. I sweep and mop the kitchen floor uh, every day. It's just I hate getting up in the morning and as you're walking across the kitchen, there are bits of food from yesterday. Just the most awful experience. So, and, and this is what this meditation is about. It's about clearing everything off the floor. So that I can just get on with the next day. Start with a blank sheet of paper for the next day. A blank canvas. Uh, but also it must be constructive. So endlessly beating ourselves up helps no one. So the purpose of it also is to, to construct something better for the following day. Um, what doesn't help is doing an inventory with huge amounts of detail because there's too much to handle. There's too much to process. So I keep it very light. I keep a very light touch when I'm going through this. Were we resentful, selfish, dishonest or afraid? When I'm doing this meditation, it's basically a conversation with God. Sometimes the answers to these questions are obvious. Sometimes I ask God to show me and I get stuff gets revealed, which I've forgotten or buried. And it's really interesting the way it's worded. Were we resentful, selfish, dishonest or afraid? It doesn't say uh were we resentful, selfish, dishonest or afraid? Tell me everything, leave nothing out. It's not this, it's not an invitation to go deeper into the resentment or the fear or the selfishness or the dishonesty. So um, when I'm spotting, when I'm spotting this, um, if I say I was resentful, I've already proved in step four that resentment is a terrible idea. So I don't need to rework the principle now. I just need to recognise I've already agreed that resentment is wrong. So that's a prompt 
to drop whatever demands I have in relation to the situation because it's always a demand that someone act in a particular way or that a circumstance be that I would have it be or that my image be a particular thing. It is the demand which is behind the resentment. There are three things you can do with demands. The first one is to drop them. So let's say I want approval. I need to drop that because it's of no use to me whatsoever. Let's say I'm working with a sponsee and I want the sponsee to be cooperative. On one level, that's a reasonable thing to want because if they're not cooperative, you can't get the work done. But the difference between a demand and a preference is a demand has an emotional landmine attached to it. There's a tripwire so that if they trip the tripwire, the landmine goes off and I blow up. So the difference between a preference and a demand, I'm looking at the same situation, but I downgrade the demand to a preference. So my preference is that sponsees cooperate. When they do, fine. If they don't, I might have to deal with it practically. But I'm not going to expect them to cooperate the whole time, but that's un unrealistic. So the first thing I can do with demands is drop them. The second thing I can do with demands is downgrade them to a preference so that I'm emotionally neutral about whether or not um, the preference is met. And realistically, you know, whatever the, whatever the thing that you prefer, I prefer not to have a broken leg or a sty in my eye, but occasionally I'm going to have one or the other. When it happens, it was my turn. The third thing I can do with a demand is, if it's legitimate, work for it. So, um, if I want to be able to play a piece of piano, uh, a piece of piano music, I have to work for it. I have to sit down and play the piano for half a, an hour a day, and then eventually I'll be able to play the piece. So, when I've got a demand, those are the three things I can do: drop, downgrade, or work for. And when I'm working for it, again, I take the action, but the results are out of my hands. So if the result is not achieved the way I want it to be achieved, there's no problem. Um, so looking at resentment, I don't want to get too deep into why I'm resentful. I just say, I'm clearly wrong. What's the demand? Drop it. Um, with selfishness, again, I mean... The, la the last line of this paragraph says, after making our review, we ask God's forgiveness and inquire what corrective measures should be taken. So sometimes I'll have a pen and a piece of paper. And I will, what I will write down is the corrective measures. And then I'll have them, I'll keep them on a note on my computer so that they're there in front of me all day. Sometimes I'll print them off and put them in front of my computer where I'm working so that I can see them there the whole time. Sometimes I'll take a set of corrective measures and use them for a week or a month. And the list gradually changes over the course of that week or month. So as I'm asking these questions, I'm asking myself at the same time, what are the corrective measures? Um, selfish is pretty straightforward. Where did and uh, actually it's not straightforward. Okay, what's selfish? Self for an action I take to be selfish, it's got to meet two tests. Test number one: Am I putting my interests ahead of someone else's? 
that someone else could be God? Am I putting my interests ahead of someone else's? And second test, is it illegitimate to do so? So when I turn my phone off, at, um, it's very hard to get through to me after eight o'clock at night. Uh, when I turn my phone off or don't take incoming calls after eight o'clock, I'm putting my interests ahead of those of other people. But it's perfectly legitimate to do so. So, so whether something is selfish requires uh, a degree of judgment. With alcoholics, it's it's straightforward. With Alanons, you've got to judge because there's there's a temptation to just say yes to everything and then resent it. Um, uh, you've got to be careful with that one. That requires some judgment. Um, dishonest. Um, we may have covered this before, I apologise, but maybe it's worth saying it again. So my categories of dishonesty, there's the number one, the outright lie. Number two, distortion of the truth. And that can be exaggeration or straightforward distortion or misrepresentation. So we've got outright lie, some kind of distortion. Concealing the truth is a form of dishonesty. And... Uh, the fourth one I, I consider is is any form of sharp dealing. So where I'm, where I've got a secret motive. So what I'm doing on the surface is not what I'm doing underneath. So any kind of decept, de deceitful action, um, and I'm sure I've told this story before, but there was I'll give you an example. Many years ago, I was I belonged to a home group where they had a new GSR. And the new GSR was maybe two years sober, and I, I don't think very well up on. He didn't. I don't think he really knew what a GSR was, but the group had voted him in as a GSR. And the GSR normally takes the group conscience meetings, and I'd called a group conscience meeting because of. I, I won't go into the situation, or we will be here forever. But I'd called a group conscience meeting, and I wanted to make sure that he, was, he would be prepared for it as the GSR to handle the group conscience meeting. Uh, but I was also pretty sure that he didn't know, oh, a GSR group, um, a general service representative. So the general service representative is the, there are two parts to that. The first part of that is that you are the link between, let's say, the AA meeting or the Al-Anon meeting and... Uh, the fellowship of AA as a whole. So you go to intergroup meetings and you carry news back from the fellowship to the group. The other role of GSR it is to, uh, in most groups in, a in AA in, in Great Britain, is to act as a sort of custodian of the traditions and the concepts. And you're sort of one of the elders of the group and you run group conscience meetings and, and so on. So I, w I was pretty sure that he wouldn't know that he, as the GSR, was supposed to be taking the group conscience meeting. And so my, my motive was to make sure that he um, was prepared, secret motive. And so I sat down next to him and said, hey, how are you? And he was like, I'm fine. And I said, so you prepared for the group conscience meeting next Saturday? And he was like, what? And all he over the 
three or four weeks that followed that, all hell broke loose because of me answering this innocent, not-so-innocent question. So this dishonesty is any uh, behaviour where my real motive is different than my surface motive, my apparent motive. And then afraid, again, we've we've established on page 68 that fear is... Um, fear stems from self-reliance. What's self-reliance? Self-reliance is where I forget that I'm spirit and I attach myself to my physical being, body, environment, community, where I'm so identified with those things an image where I'm so identified with those things that any threat to those things appears to be a threat to me. So I'm frightened. Uh, this is not counsel against um, prudence. Prudence is, is doesn't need an emotional charge to it. So you lock the front door not because you're frightened, but because you're sensible. Um, you keep an eye out for rain when your laundry is pegged out in the garden, um, not because you're frightened, but because you're sensible, you don't want to have to dry it again. So foresight and prudence are fine. It's, it's the emotional charge attached to those negative future events, which is the problem. So with the, this question, was I resentful, selfish, dishonest or afraid? Um, 99 times out of 100, if not more, the situation is one that I've encountered a thousand times before, does not need analysis. It just needs spotting so that I can come back and be more sensitive to that problem the next day. So if I've been one of my... I'm a relatively bad-tempered person. I used to be worse. Um, I'm not fixed. I'm bad-tempered. And I can be bad-tempered with... Um, sponsees. I mean, not shouty, but just gruff. And when I've had a day when I realise that I've been gruff because I've been resentful at them, you know, my job is to spot that and ask God to help me. What's the corrective measure? I'm just going to have to do some more pausing the next day. Uh, two tips. Um, um, if you if I, I don't know if you ever have conversations with people on the telephone when you become a little bit tense. Um, maybe a little bit shrill, your throat starts to tighten. Maybe the odd muscle twitching. Um, don't pace. Sit down or preferably lie down on your back. It's amazing how it just takes the tension out of your body and you're able to respond without the tension in your voice. Um, so the job here is for me to realize, to sensitize myself to where I'm diverting from God's will so that I'm more likely to catch it the next day as it's happening rather than having to wait till the end of the day. So here I'm spot, I'm not analyzing, I'm spotting I'm coming back to the higher power. I'm saying, higher power, what's my corrective measure here? What do I need to do differently tomorrow? Uh, 
one time in a hundred, one time in a thousand, the situation is novel and is going to need some analysis. And that's when I might do some writing. Let me just go and close the door. Just a second. So I'm going to repeat the fear business in response to a request. And I'm going to expand on the fear idea as well. Most people think that their consciousness comes from the physical brain. Um, in that who you are is just tied to your physical brain. So at some point in the future, when your physical brain stops functioning, the chemicals stop flying around, the electrical signals stop. Heaven forbid they turn the machine off or you die of natural causes and your, your brain winds down. A lot of people think that at that point, Basically, your consciousness is gone. Who you are is gone. Um, there is another view. Now, certainly there are things which go on in the brain where there are certain types of thinking which have a physical correlate. So there are certain types of emotion, certain types of thought pattern where if they do a brain scan, they can tell a certain bit of the brain lights up. So certain types of, certain aspects of speech, if, if particular centres in the brain are damaged in an accident, the ability to speak, the ability to form sentences goes. The intelligence is still there, but the linguistic ability goes, or aspects of the linguistic ability go. So they've pinpointed a relationship between certain parts of the brain and certain types of brain function. But there are certain aspects that they have trouble finding a correlation for. One of them is the exercise of human will, where we make a decision between A or B. There is a view, and this isn't a hokey um, new... It's not. This view is not confined to hokey new age conspiracy theory believing uh, people that live in yurts and wear rainbow colors this <laughs> these so th what i'm about to say although it is believed by some new age people it's not confined to that the idea comes from the domains of linguistics uh, philosophy uh, computer science neuroscience um, um, compu uh, computer Scientists who are involved in artificial intelligence, I, I won't go into a huge amount of detail because I can't. But there is an idea, not everyone believes it, but there is an idea which is being pursued seriously by academics in each of these areas. That consciousness lies beyond the physical brain. And what the physical brain is doing is acting like a receiver tuned to a particular wavelength so that as when you're when you switch on the radio and you turn the dial to a particular frequency a program which was being broadcast already now floods into your room through the receiver 
Now, no one believes that the, the radio broadcast is coming from within the radio. We realise that it's coming from outside and that if you destroy the radio, the broadcast is still there. My understanding of self-reliance, if I am the radio broadcast, being broadcast through a radio, the radio is my physical form, there's a mistake I can make. And the mistake is when the broadcast thinks it originates in the radio, doesn't realise that it's coming from somewhere beyond, and if you were the broadcast and you thought that you were coming from the radio, you'd start to feel a little worried about anything which threatens the radio. Because if something destroys the radio, boom, you're destroyed. So, now, um, you know, I appear to be in a physical form, apparently. At a subatomic level, you can't see it. But at this level, apparently, you can because of the way photons interact with so-called matter. Um, self-reliance fails us, according to page 68. What is self? What is self? Well, if who I really am, self with a capital S, is spirit. Self with a small s is a confused state when I identify myself with two things. Number one, my physical form, my body, and everything that extends from that. My material circumstances, my income, my asset position. We don't want to talk about my asset position or anyone else's at the moment. If you're attached to your asset position, just don't even look at the portfolio, okay? Um, I think when the next one comes through the door, I'm just going to shred it. I'm not going to read it. I'm going to leave it two years before looking at that at that document. Um, if I'm attached to those things, it's because I believe that I am those things on some level. And it's the same with things that I accomplish with my body. So achievements in the material world, positions, status, and then the image of myself. This is the second thing. So the first thing is the physical form, the physical world. The second thing is my image of myself. Now, if my image of myself is spirit connected with everyone else, maybe with a specific role to play in the world, fine. But that's who I really am. I'm fine. That can't be threatened. So I'm always safe when I'm living in that identity. As soon as I have an identity which relates to my appearance, my skills or lack of, my achievements, my personality, where I live what groups I belong to in society, my nation, uh, my religious affiliation. As soon as I'm attached to all of those, and that's my, I, that's my real identity, they're clothes I wear, fine. And I can choose which clothes to wear, but they're clothes, they're not my ultimate identity. Um, as soon as I'm attached to all of those things psychologically then I'm going to be frightened. There are certain types of identity beyond spirit which are attached to higher realms. So I'm, I'm, I'm not going to cover that. So, you know, what, 
to some extent, religious identity, I think, is carved out from that because that's something that can't be, you know, the spirit can't be threatened. And the, the you know, I've got Christian friends who say this as well, that they're, they're not concerned about their physical body. They, you know, it's their connection with God that matters. And that's intrinsically linked to the religion. So that's a slightly different thing. But certainly my attachment to being British my attachment to having a French family. I, you know, when France is attacked in some way, I feel, if I'm not in my right mind, I feel personally affected by that when people are rude about the French, which happens a lot. You know, it's it's a horrible nationality to be attached to because, especially if you're around Americans, I mean, the view of the French is not, is, is not flattering often. Um... So fear comes from attachment to things which are vulnerable. If something is not vulnerable, it can't be attacked. If it can't be attacked, there's nothing to be frightened of. I'll tell you the... Have I told you the vinegar on the sofa story? Okay, don't remember that one. Okay. So, um, my friend made amends to her flatmate from many years earlier... My friend, when she got drunk, would be a little bit vindictive. And she once poured some vinegar on this girl's settee, her sofa, her couch. Um, and when she made amends, the girl said, and she said, you know, I'm so sorry for pouring the vinegar on the couch. I shouldn't have done it. It was a terrible thing to do. And... The girl said, I can't believe you did that to me. And when this was reported to me, something clicked. I thought, oh my God, she literally believes that she is a sofa. This is a very confused girl. So that if you hurt her couch, you've hurt her. She literally does not know where she stops and the couch starts. And then she said, there was a second half. <laughs> this girl had been saving a bottle of champagne for a special occasion. And my friend drank it. Of course she drank it. It was there. So she said, and oh, I'm really sorry for drinking your bottle of champagne. And the girl said, I can't believe you did that to me either. And I thought this girl is more confused than I imagined. One minute she thinks she's a couch, the next minute she thinks she's a, a bottle of champagne. And here's the, th here's the extraordinary, extraordinary bit. The couch was still in existence, but the bottle of champagne had been gone for years. She literally believed that she was the contents of a bottle of champagne which had ceased to exist several years ago. That was her literal identity. So because you did that to the champagne, you did that to her. And it sounds ridiculous until you realise when you go out and you realise you've got some kind of like coffee dribble down your shirt and you feel embarrassed. That's when I do that. It's because I believe I'm the shirt. So that if the shirt looks bad, I look bad. What is that but mistaken identity? So, fear comes from identification with things which are not me. Does it mean that I don't protect things? Of course I do, because I have a higher mission on the planet. How do I know? Because I'm here. 
Um, so if God made everything, there is a point to everything. My purpose is to uncover what that point is and in me and live it. And so the reason I look after my physical form is because it helps me fulfill the higher purpose. But make no mistake, God will fulfill the higher purpose through me, um, despite me, with me, without me. God's will be done. So, so, so that in in the um, if you go to AA meetings in America or meet recovery meetings in America, they'll use the um, uh, so-called Lord's Prayer, and there'll be the phrase "Thy will be done." Um, and that could be an expression of a request that, you know, one wants God's will to be done. You know, um, you know, as it were, let God's will be done. You know, may God's will be done. Or thy will be done could be a statement of fact. Thy will is going to be done. <laughs> Let's make no mistake. It's going to be done. Um, so it's a recognition that God's will is going to be done one way or another. The question is, to what extent am I going to cooperate or get in its way? That's the only thing which and that's where the in the question of free will. Um, I heard a brilliant, brilliant um, explanation of the role of free will. So he, it was someone giving a talk to which many people had travelled and he said, so you're all going to get in your cars at the end of the talk and you're going to drive home. Your route is entirely up to you. You know, you could go out of state, you could do a whole loop all the way around and then go home. You could drive straight home on the freeway. You could um, uh, drive straight home on little country roads. You could stop at a Denny's on the way. You could do whatever you want. You will get home though. One way or another, dead or alive, you're going to get home. So God's will will be done. It is up to you how quickly, how slowly, how cooperatively, how uncooperatively you'll do it. So my security lies in the fact that God's will will be done. I can either cooperate or not cooperate, but there's no basis for fear. Um, let's look at the other questions. Do we owe an apology? Have we kept something to ourselves which should be discussed with another person at once? So with those two questions, it's really clear. I you know, keep a pen and a piece of paper. Just go and make the apology now. Um, if there's something that needs to be discussed with or disclosed to someone else, go and disclose it. Both of these are uncomfortable conversations. You know, my preferred presence in the world is one of those, you know, Japanese um, dolls with the like the, the porcelain face where nothing, nothing moves. <laughs> I would rather just be completely inscrutable. You have no idea what is going on. But recovery requires me to connect. And this is one of the connecting points is when I say every day, um, who do I need to apologize to? And is there something which needs to be discussed with another person at once? How do I know it needs to be discussed with someone else at once? This is where God comes in. 
If I say to God, hey, is there anything I need to discuss with anyone else? Whatever then occurs to me, let's go and discuss it with someone else. If it turns out to be a waste of time, I've wasted five minutes. I trust God in that moment to tell me. We'll be kind and loving toward all. Well, what a stupid question. Of course not. <laughs> um, this is linked to the... I mean, sort of linked to the next question. What could we have done better? I put those two together. What could I have done differently? And this feeds into corrective measures for the following day. But also I can look at what could we have done better just in a general sense. Um, I'm slightly addicted to the iPhone app TikTok, which has got these little like 10, 20, 30 second videos. And as soon as one finishes, another one starts. It's just it's it's the devil's work. And, you know, what could I have done better? I'm limiting myself to 10 minutes a day because, I mean, it's like basically me and about 50 million 20-year-olds use TikTok. Uh, there's just no one else. <laughs> me and a bunch of teenagers, basically. Um, what could I have done better? It's not a good... I mean, there can be some decoration in my life, but really I don't need to spend an hour and a half looking at these dumb videos. So what can I do better? Maybe restrict it for a bit. It doesn't have to be little things that I change every day. If I change one little thing a day, that's 365 things in the course of a year. That's enough change. So pick a couple of things which I might want to do differently the next day. Will we thinking of ourselves most of the time or will we thinking of what we could do for others, of what we could pack into the stream of life? Uh, I think we have to assume that we're shooting for the for the latter, that what we should be thinking about is what we can, can contribute to life, what we can do for others, what we can pack into the stream of life. Two points about that. Firstly, um, a good example of thinking about what we can do for others. So I, I host this step group, uh, it's, it's not a group, it's a meeting every evening and some some of the other co-organisers are on here today. And we're covering the big book systematically. And we're, grad we're on step three right now. It's taken us a little while to get there. Five or six days to do a step. And... I've been talking about the content to a couple of to my friend Nico and my friend John. And we're both constantly rethinking how can we talk about the principles of steps one, two and three and of the other steps and present our experience in line with those in a way which maximizes the chance that what we say is going to get through to new people or people who are struggling or people who are perplexed. Um, so if you listen to John, if you listen to Nico, every single time they share about step one, it's different. Because the program, the software is constantly running. How can I improve how I'm presenting this material? I once spoke at a meeting about 10 years ago, and this lady 
waltzes in about 25 minutes late, doesn't hear the talk. Uh, and then she shares first. Of course she shares first. She wasn't there for most of the meeting. Of course she puts her hand up. So she shares. God bless her. And she says, um, I've heard your chair before, so I'm sure it was great. Like I have one talk and it's the same thing every time. It's, it's a, you know, it's like saying I don't need to look in the mirror today. I've looked in the mirror before. What am I going to see? You have to, you need to check some stuff on a daily basis. The older you get, the more you're checking on a daily basis. Like there's a lot of stuff that doesn't look right. Um, so I don't have one chair. I don't have one message. Um, it's con- it it grows and it evolves, which is why I'm not bored in AA. I've never been bored. Um. I don't think everyone is doing this. Maybe. I try and do I Nico is very strong on this. He always says, there's a line from the big book where it talks about we're constantly thinking about or about how we can present our ideas to new people. So this is something, this is a constant evolving, growing activity. So that's what I should be thinking about. Um, sometimes people say, you know, I don't prepare for an AA trip. When I'm doing a talk, I don't prepare. Some talks I don't prepare, some I do. And people say it's very wrong if, you, if you're going to be talking at a convention, if you're going to be talking at a meeting, to be running through what you're going to say in advance. I used to agree with that. I thought, well, it's just ego. God's going to inspire you in the moment. But I tell you, those times when you retell the story again and again and again, working out how to pitch it, vital part of the process. Now, it's not because you want to script what you're going to say, but you're trying out how the story sounds, how the explanation sounds. Does it make sense? How does one idea segue to another? Not a bad thing, as long as God is in charge of the process, as long as I'm saying to God, help me think this through, help me work, ha- help me work out how these different parts fit together. So that's what I should be thinking about. If I'm having a hard time, sometimes the first thing I flip to is, how would I explain in a meeting the hard time I'm going through and how how I'm inviting God into this process? So that rather than sitting in the problem, I'm sitting in the solution whilst the problem still appears to be there. And Dr. Paul O, that's Dr. Paul O. If you go to AA speaker sites, you can find him very easily. He's the Dr. Paul O from Laguna Beach. That's Laguna Beach in, I guess, near Laguna. I don't know, California, somewhere. Los Angeles, like south, somewhere around there. Um... He said, if you live in the problem, the problem gets bigger. If you live in the solution, the problem goes away. So this is what I should be thinking about when I have a problem, how I can bring God into it. Page 133. Every, let me just flip to the quotation. Avoid the deliberate manufacture of misery, but if trouble comes, cheerfully capitalise it as an opportunity to demonstrate his omnipotence. So in double entry bookkeeping, a debit can be an expense and it's gone and it's lost, or it can be capitalised and become an asset with which you create new turnover or revenue. And it's the same thing with things that are happening right now. I can be capitalising them as they happen. 
Next line, but we must be careful not to drift into worry, remorse, or morbid reflection. Um, very little needs to be said about that. Uh, I, I lived in worry, remorse, and morbid reflection for years in sobriety. It's a, it's a horrible habit of mine. For that would diminish our usefulness. Um, I once asked Jonathan um, um, about resent. I'm sure I've mentioned this before about resentment. Um, either other people's resentment or his own. And he says, it needs to go because it gets in the way. Brilliant. Uh, worry gets in the way. Remorse gets in the way. Morbid reflection gets in the way. Once I said to my... I was explaining to my sponsor, like he was a little bit dim, how everything in the world was going to pot, everything was going wrong, there was no hope. And he said, maybe you're right, but who is that insight helping? So if it's going to go down, down, go down smiling, go down useful. Your, your great wisdom is not helping at this point. Um, so that stuff has to go because it gets in the way. After making our review, we ask God's forgiveness and inquire. Now, it's presumed that we're going to get it, I think. <laughs> ask a rabbi if God does forgive us. That's that's above my pay grade. <laughs> but I proceed on the assumption that God is going to forgive. Forgive me and inquire what corrective measures should be taken. So sometimes the corrective measure is obvious, but very often if something is recurring again and again and again, clearly something is not giving. So I, I say to my higher power, what is my corrective measure for this situation? And sometimes I will get an unexpected answer. Same with sponsors. If, you're high, if, if, if you phone your higher power and you get the engaged tone, or you've clearly dialed the wrong number, um, you can phone your sponsor instead and he will be happy to stand in for your higher power for just a moment and give you a corrective measure. So in 1994, I was really upset about something on a Sunday. And my I phoned my sponsor and he said, have you smelled a flower today? I said, a flower? You want me to smell a flower? He said, yes. Go and find a flower to smell. When you come back, if there's still a problem, phone me. And I went and found a flower. I got back. The problem had gone. So if I can't come up with an effective corrective measure, I ask the higher power. If not getting anything from there, I ask someone else and I'm going to get a corrective measure. It can't possibly be worse than anything I can come up with myself. Corrective measures, is it the same as making amends? Um, I'd like to make a distinction firstly between apologies and amends. So an apology is a simple admission that I'm, I've done something wrong and I recognise that it was wrong, I shouldn't have done it and I'm going to endeavour not to do it again. And it's a, it's a quiet, low-key thing to do. An amend is more of a production number and covers... In my experience, the whole relationship with the person say, this is what I've got wrong in this relationship or some major incident. So not some minor 
um, infraction, but uh, a big bust up. So that's what amends are reserved for. They're slightly more formal. They're approached with more delicacy. Um, corrective measures is much broader. Um, the three levers I can pull, or levers, if you're using an American dictionary, um, the three levers I can pull, the three things over which I have agency, and I've said this before, but it's I need to say it to myself on a daily basis. Number one, what I believe. Um, spiritual Paul, an AA member in London, used to say, uh, in AA there's too much thinking and not enough believing. Uh in the big book somewhere, it says your belief is sure to come to you. Sometimes that comes from action. If I take the action, the belief comes. But essentially, the belief is up to me. If I want to believe in a loving God, I'm allowed to believe in a loving God. I don't need anyone's permission. I don't need to prove it first. I can believe it first. And the way most ideas become real in my life is by is by treating them as true, which is belief, and then practicing them. So belief, that's the first lever I can pull. The second lever I can pull is what I think about. What I think of, I have no control over. Uh, you can't control who knocks on the door. You can control who you let in. So... I can control my belief, I can control what I think about, and I can control my action. Now, the higher power is needed for all three. If you're untrained, uh, it takes a lot of training to learn how to change your beliefs by will and to change your th and to change what you think about and to change your action. But it can be done and you get better at it by practicing it. So a corrective measure, what's a corrective measure? Okay, so this, this meditation stroke inventory on page 86, what I'm really looking for is where I've gone wrong, where are my beliefs wrong, where is my thinking wrong, where is my behaviour wrong. The corrective measure is the correct belief, is the correct thinking or the correct behaviour. Problem, solution. And the corrective measures collectively across the inventory, stroke meditation, become the plan for the day, or at least part of the plan for the next day. Um, and as I say, sometimes I do, I, I, I do different things at different times. That there are times when I uh, do a new... At the moment, this is what I'm doing, a new corrective measure list every day. For several months, I had a rolling corrective measure list where I would read the list every morning. Maybe one or two things would be added to it. Maybe a couple of things would drop off it once I'd practiced them enough that they became innate, that they became second nature. So there are different ways. Um, one way to treat the book... Um, if it gives me an instruction, I follow the instruction. Anything on which it remains silent is up to me. 
And the reason I say this, some people say that the big book contains everything you need to know. And that if it's not in the big book, it's not the AA program. Um, and I don't agree with this view. <laughs> Uh, it also says in the big book that we know but a little and more will be revealed. It says that God will reveal stuff to us. And a good example of where the big book, it does give clear cut directions. This is totally true, but they're not exhaustive directions. There are some directions which are very vague. I'll give you an example on page 75. The actual instructions for carrying out the step five uh it's not even two lines there's an awful lot about preparation about the mental state we adopt the general approach how you find someone why you're doing it but the instructions are very very limited page 75 we pocket our pride and go to it that's not even an instruction that's about a spiritual status a spiritual state is setting our pride to one side and go to it. It means we, we do it. And the instructions are this. One, two, three, four. First, so first instruction, four words, illuminating every twist of character. Next instruction, six words, every dark cranny of the past. So the instructions for step 10, step five, are 10 words. Now exactly how do you illuminate every twist of character? It doesn't say. How you illuminate every dark cranny of the past? It doesn't say. It doesn't give time scale. Does this take half an hour? Is this every Sunday for a year? Doesn't say. Um, context suggests that this is a a single conversation. And some of the stories in the back illustrate how people did it, which is, I think, page 263 of the big book in the English ver English language version has got a story where steps, I think, four through nine take four hours. Anyway, um, or at least the preparation for nine. Obviously, you can't run around to everyone in the four hours, but you can prepare for it. So this is a really good example of where... When I do step five with someone, as long as we are illuminating every twist of character, every dark cranny of the past, how we do that is totally up to us. Nothing is right. Nothing is wrong. If it works, do it. If it doesn't, don't. And so it's the same with the corrective measures. I'm, I'm fulfilling the word of step 11 by inquiring what the corrective measures are that should be taken. What I then do with those, the book remains silent on. So there, what I do is up to me and my sponsor and my higher power and my friends and my experience and all sorts of other factors. So there are two elements to your program. There's what instructions are in black and white in the book or other books that you use and then there's how you incorporate that into your life which is why it's possible for to have a room where everyone shares on the step where there are lots of things they have in common but lots of things 
which are different. If you go to a meeting where everybody's experience is identical, there might be something funny going on there because there's no higher power being brought into how these are applied. Everyone's just cookie cutter copying one particular person and that can be a bit dangerous. So um, I'm running out of time. Does anyone have any questions? Sarah, yes, feel free to unmute yourself. Yeah, did I, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, good. I actually have a bunch of questions, but I'm just going to ask one. Um, the part where it says, was I thinking about myself or what I could do for others? Um, how does that kind of apply to Al-Anon? I would imagine it's a bit different from... Yeah, it does. It's definitely different. What I'm also going to do, I'm going to put my email address in the chat box. It can also be obtained from Emma in Manchester or Elisheva in Jerusalem if you need it. All the questions you've got, send them through and next week I'll cover, I'll, I'll cover off all the questions. But to answer that question now, um, so, so the question is... Um, uh, with the were we thinking of ourselves most of the time, or were we thinking of what we could do for others? Uh, alcoholics and addicts tend to need a little bit of a prompt occasionally to think about others. Um, I have the misfortune to require the tools of both programs, both sides of the fence. And I can get so wrapped up in doing good things, doing virtuous things, doing the right thing, that I get physically ill, that I get run down, I don't look after myself, I say yes when I should say no, I believe things I shouldn't believe, I'll never do it again, I'm serious about recovery this time, like those things, I get dumb. That's one of my Al-Anon things. I just get dumb. I believe stuff that no one else would believe. So there is a point at which I've got to stop. I err on the side of doing too much. So that's why. So whichever side you err on, you need to lean in the other direction. So in my case, um, um, I generally need to lean more to looking after myself, taking time out, being quiet. But I still have an addict streak which believes that relaxation is numbing myself out either with a computer game or some awful app or Facebook or social media or just rubbish, 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 rubbish. And my observation of... Uh, uh, and I've had this related by many friends in people I've worked with in uh, in Al-Anon or Essanon is that although the basic setting is um, the Al-Anon setting of just rushing around, doing good things, organising everything, being in charge, being effective and efficient and slightly tense um, and 
the general corrective measure is to calm down and leave them to it, let it break around you, mind your own business, tend your own yard, yank weeds out of your yard, not their yard, um, keep your sails out of other people's wind, keep their wind out of your sails. All of those things are true, but um, sometimes Alanons and Essanons can also act out under the heading as I do it, under the heading of, you know, it's mummy's time for a little break now. And what mummy's time for a little break looks like is not anything which is genuinely relaxing or healthy. It's just blocking everything out and doing something mindless. Like you can't face going back into the tasks of the day. You can't face dealing with all the stuff out there. So you just shut yourself away and engage in mindless rubbish or overeating or there are all sort over exercising there are all sorts of things which come under the heading of self which can i can trick myself our self care but are actually addictive processes in themselves so i flip back and forth between the addictive process of being in charge of everything and the addictive process of numbing myself out in really, really inappropriate ways and thinking that I've got balance. Like balance is not having two addictions at once and giving equal time to both. <laughs> That's not the balance we're after. There's something, just one last thing I want to share. And so and every, so everyone, feel free to write a whole load of questions if you have questions, and then I'll cover those next week. There's one thing I want to finish on. And there's a cultural phenomenon that I may need to uh, illuminate. So, in the United Kingdom, um, most primary schools, elementary schools, around Christmas time will have something called a nativity play. And in a nativity play, the whole... Um, story of the birth of Jesus is reenacted and you've got all sorts of characters. You've got Joseph and Mary and Jesus and there are shepherds, there are angels, there is an innkeeper, um, there is Herod, there is Pilate, there is uh, the angel Gabriel, just all sorts of who you may know. Um, the, there's just all sorts of characters in there and you know there are sheep and there are cattle and so there's something for everyone to play and it's always an immensely uh an immensely competitive affair like who is going to play mary everyone all the girls want to be mary all the boys want to be joseph these are the two major parts um the jesus is just a plastic doll usually um, and if you're extra lucky, you get to be the angel Gabriel. That's one of the other, you know, great roles. And occasionally there's a flute solo or a, you know, a ballet solo or something. But this is a this is a cultural institution. And there's a show, there's a cartoon from 20 years ago or so uh, from the UK called um, Stressed Eric. Stressed Eric, which is rather curious and wonderful. And Eric's family is like the addict family. And everything is broken. Nothing works. Everything is broken. They have a Spanish 
au pair who is a heroin addict and drunk the whole time. And they live next to this family who are perfect. There's Mr. and Mrs. Perfect, and they have this perfect child. And in the nativity play, one year in this series, Stressed Eric, um, uh, Eric's son plays third sheep. All he has to be is a sheep, and he's not even the first sheep. He's the third sheep. So he's in a sheep, he's in a sheep um, costume, and all he has to do is say, bah, that's all he has to do. And the neighbour's perfect little girl, um, uh, Eric asks Mrs. Perfect, so what's she playing in the play? And Mrs. Perfect says, Mary, Joseph, the angel Gabriel, Pilate, Caligula, the narrator, Egypt and God. And this is just so delicious because that reflects my, you know, as the Al-Anon side of me, that reflects my life goals. I want to be everything in everyone's lives. So I've got to be really careful to just stay inside my little cage of what I'm really supposed to be doing. So less is more. Um, am I thinking about what I can pack into the stream of life, what I can do for others? That involves two things. I'm not a gardener, but I've known gardeners. And they grow stuff, but they prune. They prune stuff. A good gardener will prune rose bushes back mercilessly. You send a good gardener into a garden and you're like, what have you done? You've destroyed everything. No, they've pruned. If it's not pruned, it won't grow properly. It'll grow weird. And it's like that with this. So we've got to be asking ourselves, not what can I do more? What can I do more? What can I do more? Sometimes it's what can I do less so that what I'm doing, I'm doing better. Um, um, a, and just a last thing, um, Emma, can you, uh, Chaya's asked, can you write down the info regarding the next Sunday's conference in the chat and also maybe make a, a, an oral announcement?